Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day, wherever you are and whenever you happen to be listening to this right now. I'm Magnus Hedemark. I'm your host of the Neuroverse podcast. The last couple of weeks, we talked to guests from different backgrounds. We talked to two autistic women who told us about their experiences with coronavirus and the lockdown orders. Um, I'm, I'm sad to say one of those guests did get sick right after the podcast, and we thought it was coronavirus, but I'm happy to say it was, quote unquote, just the flu. So, uh, Bree, if you're listening, uh, we hope you're on the mend and, and feeling better soon. Last week, uh, we talked to Paul Stevenson about his life experience with Tourette syndrome. And this week, we're going to go somewhere else into the neuroverse, someplace we haven't really explored before. I do need to say that this is, this is a special and, and poignant episode for me. Uh, recent events in my country and, and now rippling around the world are centered around an experience that's been all too common in America and in other countries, but it was captured on video this time. And what I'm speaking of is the murder of a black man, George Floyd, under the knee of a Minneapolis police officer who was protected in this act by three other police officers. This has been the experience for black Americans for over 400 years, but only now has it become part of the national conversation and indeed part of the world conversation. While it's always important to lift up diverse voices from all different colors, creeds, nationalities, gender identities, sexual preferences, what have you, I think today now more than ever, we need to be focusing on black voices what that, what that life experience is. And we're going to put a neuroverse spin on that today. I'm really happy today to introduce you to my friend, Wesley Jackson Wade. So Wes, welcome to the show. Thank you, brother. Good to, good to be on here, man. I'm so excited for this. This is awesome. What you were doing. I love it. Yeah. I've been, when I first had the idea for this podcast, I, I knew I wanted you on here at some point. And this is exactly the right time. Uh, well, I, I, I am honored, man. You have been someone I value greatly in my life. And we haven't even known each other for that long. But it's just, man, your spirit and your energy just vibe with everything that I'm about. And, I, and you know, when you, when you find people like that, you connect in iron sharpens yeah. iron and you help each other. Man, it's been great. It's been a fast friendship, interrupted in its in its velocity by by coronavirus and the shutdown. We did get out for some drinks right before all this mess started. We did, which was which was great. Yeah, yeah. I've, been, I've been been thinking about some drinks. <laughs> so, uh, Wes, you've been a busy guy. Uh, you've got your master's degree. You're still working on your PhD. You're working by day, helping students from many backgrounds at the career center at your university mm -hmm. and even doing some moonlighting work as a counselor. 
Can you tell me a little bit about that moonlighting work? That's a, that's a part of you I haven't heard a lot about. Yeah, I don't talk about it as much for a multitude of reasons because, you know, there's conflicts of interest and stuff. And, you know, my uh, full-time primary employer knows about it and we I have all the paperwork signed and, you know, it's legit. Um, I, I am not doing it as much right now. Um, it is very rare and that was a point of me scaling things back a little bit to be intentional about my self-care and be pr- being present for my partner and our soon-to-be four-year-old daughter. Uh, however, I did, I have a private practice called Forward Counseling. And at first I had a brick and mortar office in Raleigh, actually in North Hills. I was renting the space from a former coworker who retired and he was just amazing guy. We actually nicknamed him the Oracle. Um, and he would just give me all, all this great advice. I mean, he was there when I was an undergrad too. And, um, I rented that space for a while and he was very nice to me in that and gave me a great rate on it and all this, but it just didn't work. And he was kind enough to let me exit the lease early, which is very kind on his behalf. Um, And then I started doing in-home counseling with that moonlighting. And what I really do is like uh, uh, mental health and substance abuse. So I'm a licensed clinical mental health counselor, and I'm a licensed clinical addiction specialist and a certified clinical mental health counselor, in addition to doing career counseling in my full-time role. So I have a master's in clinical mental health counseling, and I have a master's in career counseling. counseling. And like you said, I'm working on my PhD here. But um, the private practice was really on that mental health piece. I thought when I made this career change, wow, uh, six, seven years ago, that mental health was it. But then I started realizing that, man, I really identified a lot with career counseling too. And to me, career counseling and mental health are all one and the same. But anyway, I, um, I, I, I love that piece. I really genuinely love the mental health and the substance abuse piece more, but it's, 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 it takes a lot of you to do. And it, it, burnout is very high in that area. So I like trying to incorporate those worlds, but working with primarily young adult males in my private practice, um, because I wasn't taking insurance initially, most happened to not look like me. Most actually were young white guys that I had worked with and had some great clients that I worked with. I I had some young black clients I worked with and it was, man, I, 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 I miss those days at times because I could just do things the way that I wanted and I had my own flexibility and th- that'll come back at a certain point in time um, still as a side thing, but without rambling on <laughs> too much about that, that's kind of the, the, the stint of it. So it, sometimes it was anxiety. Sometimes it was ADHD and um, other things or depression, a range of stuff, but substance abuse was always in there. So that, that kind of brings us towards your day job and how I first got to know you, your career counselor at NC state university. Yep. And uh, among the populations that you serve, there's a population of autistic students at NC state and you lead a program uh, called Students Moving Forward. And what really impressed me immediately was you're out there 
uh, surrounding yourself with autistic adults to help you on this journey. Not just helping you, but helping the students directly. And it's, it's an approach to neurodiversity that we, we don't often see. Can you tell me a little bit about what got you started on this road to, to building and leading students moving forward? Yeah. Um, so all we're getting, we just wrapped up the third year. So we're uh, moving towards four years now. A colleague of mine, Dana Thomas, who's awesome. I love Dana. She's great. Um, she's one of the advisors for biological sciences at the university. Her and I had two students specifically that we shared. They were students under my umbrella that I served. They were students under her um, role for uh, her uh, area of study. And those students were open about being autistic. And we noticed that it was hard for them in terms of getting experience and getting the interviews and moving through that process. And I really did not know a lot about autism at all at that point in time. I, I knew you know, what the majority of Americans know that we see stereotyped in media and things like that. And I was also still relatively new to higher ed. I worked in corporate America for you know roughly 10 years doing like business to business sales and stuff like that. And um, we went around campus like, you know, what, what can we do for these students? And we got pointed around in multiple directions. And, you know, a few people were like, well, you should talk to the Career Development Center. <laughs> I was like, I, I am the Career Development Center, right? So that was just a um, clear calling to us that we just got to do something, you know. And, and instead of the typical route of higher ed of death by committee, <laughs> and, you know, we have a committee that deliberates on this for two years, and then we figure out if maybe we'll do something, we're like, we're just going to do something. We're just going to see how it works. And I'm so thankful I, I work in an office that gives me autonomy and gives me um, authority over the area that I serve. And without that, I wouldn't have been able to do this. So that's how it started. Um, what was interesting is we realized how much we didn't know in that first year. <laughs> I was... I was like, I know, I know nothing. Like we had this plan and had pulled like some stuff from Temple Grandin, Dr. Temple Grandin that we saw and like worked some things in. And man, we completely revamped it after that first year and changed the focus of it. Um, you mentioned me surrounding myself with working professionals who are autistic. And that wasn't, I didn't, I, I, I feel terrible saying that, but I didn't even think about that initially. And it seems so dumb and obvious. Me as a Black person, I don't want to see initiatives for Black people that involve no Black people in the planning stage. And like, it's so obvious. And I never thought about it. And like, man, I wanted to slap myself across the face when I had that moment. I'm like, I'm doing that first year, I was doing the same thing to a group of people that I get frustrated when people do that to me. And I was like, yeah, no, nah, we, we ain't going to have that. We go, we going to change this. Yeah. So that, that, that was how it got started. That That's amazing. Were there any other things that went like really well in that first year that, that carried on? Um, 
<laughs> food, providing foods <laughs> yes. carried on. That started, but that's, you know, for every every, every college student. Um, you know, the, the authenticity of the group, um, I'm not going to use any names of the students, but there was one of the students who I still talk to now, and he graduated two or three years ago. Oh, man, I love that guy. He He's great. His sense of humor is just awesome. And um, I was using a phrase that a lot of my friends and family from the military, because I also work with military and veteran students to a lesser degree on campus, but I have a lot of family and friends who are as well. And there's a, I don't know if it's army specific or it's general military. I feel like it might be army specific, maybe not. I don't know. Um, but it was embrace the suck. And that was like my unofficial motto. And I, you know, I, it, it was one of my first lessons in the way that my autistic students think about things. And when I said that, man, he thought it was the funniest thing. And it became this, like, it was hard to get off of that, that point for a while. And it, just that saying and how they clung to that saying for multiple reasons it showed me, it showed me a lot. It showed me that um, I am not always the best communicator and most people aren't. We don't think about the multitude of ways that things can be interpreted. Um, and also it just, it showed me that I can be myself with this group of students. And man, I love that because I, you know, look, man, I'm, People who know me and work with me, I'm not like a very formal person. That's one of the reasons why I like higher ed. And sure, there's some formalities and stuff with higher ed. No place is perfect, but um, I, I'm just I'm just not that guy. I'm I I I, I want to be a genuine, laid back guy, and and that that has remained in the group. And you've been there. It's not yeah, you know, it's not a very structured thing. Like we have some clear goals, objectives, and some things that we do each semester and I roll some other things in, but I intentionally learned in that first time was like, this needs to be as organic as possible. And I, that I love, I love that. I will never do anything as far as I can control that does not have this natural feel to it. I just, I just don't want to be a part of things that, <laughs> that feel super structured and have no ability to um, be honest and natural. And I've seen that. Um, I've, I've been to some of the SMF meetings and that, that really impressed me that you might lead in with some conversation points. You might, you might have some ideas about where the meeting's going to go, but then the students are very upfront about what they want to talk about and what they need. And the conversation just goes in the direction that services their needs. Right, and I th I think that's beautiful. I I really hope that that point isn't lost on anybody that might be watching uh, your program grow, and and that it's something that's baked into the DNA of any programs modeled off of yours. I I feel the same way, definitely. Yeah, it's for the students. At the end of the day, my job exists to serve the students on campus, and. Yeah, okay, they don't always know exactly what it is that they need because they don't know what they don't know, but they do know their experience. They know their areas that they're struggling in and what they want to see. And, you know, I would, it would be myopic and selfish of me not to allow conversations to go into areas that 
um, are clearly important to them. That, that that would not serve the students well. You mentioned earlier when you were talking about your private practice that a lot of your clients uh, did not look like you. That they were that they were mostly white clients, and I'm, you know that leads me to wondering about students moving forward. There's uh, a diverse student body at NC State. And sure, a lot of the faces that I'm seeing there are, are white. I'm, I'm wondering what you're observing as being different about the black autistic experience, which is something we almost never talk about. Yeah. I am, um, you know, I can comment on it from what I observe as an outsider, right? And it's not my experience to say, well, this is what it is and blah, 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 blah. Sure. I will fight my hardest to keep myself from doing things like that. We, we're, none of us are perfect. We all make mistakes sometimes. Um, what I what I have noticed is it's just something we don't talk about and is not present. And as I have grown to understand what it means to be autistic and the um, I like to call them systemic neurotypical barriers uh, that are created, which are just different forms of systemic injustice, right? That factor is magnified for Black autistic students. It's a point of intersectionality, right, that Kimberly Crenshaw um, didn't invent, she coined it. She in, coined the term intersectionality and expanded on that research. Angela Davis really did a lot with it. Um, Patricia... Collins Hill or Hill Collins, one of those, she's done a lot with it too, um, around the concepts of black feminist thought. And it's, you know, when you think about a student who's walking through life as black, there's already some additional obstacles and hurdles that they have in addition to what everyone else has when it comes to even making it to a place like NC State. So you have that. Any student, regardless of their race, ethnicity, whatever aspects of their identity they have, who is autistic, experience some even more hurdles in comparison to the general neurotypical white populace in order to get to a place like NC State. So on one part, I really like working with um, my autistic students, regardless of race, because, you know, they worked really hard to get to that place. It, it, I, I hate it when people use the term hard work because everybody works hard for the most part, right? Um, hard work is a is a piece of American mythology from Horatio Alger to now. We talk right. about it all the time. It drives me nuts. So, you know, you already have that. But then when you think of a Black student who is autistic, who got to NC State, I, that student understands so much more about resilience about overcoming situations, which also means they have a lot more going on because walking through that space is gonna give you a lot of residual baggage that you collect from walking through life in that way, right? Whether it's additional anxieties, paranoia, like I always feel like I'm watched all the time because I was young as a young black male, you know, I'm, I'm watched when I'm in a store, I'm watched when I'm in school, I'm watched, with whatever I'm doing. And I always have this sense that I'm being watched. It drives me insane. And I've been noticing it more in this um, time of COVID where we've been home and 
you know, I'm very fortunate to have a nice suburban single family detached home, but it's a pretty close neighborhood proximity wise. And I always feel like my neighbors can see me. Um, and that's part of that paranoia piece too, right? So like, I'm, I'm drifting off here, which that's my ADHD <laughs> talking. Oh, we'll get so, to that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, those students, I just want them to be seen. They're just not seen, you know? And look, I love all of these programs that I'm seeing, these um, autism to work, which I guess really is, um, uh, I've seen a few people comment, should really be autistic to work. I, um, but these programs... Like they're great, they're wonderful. But when I see them, I it's like a stage full of it's not even white women, it's just a stage full of white dudes. And I'm like, man, like there's so much that has to be done before we even start talking about the college piece, you know. And there's some great people doing work in that area. Dr. Jamie Pearson at NC State is doing awesome, amazing work, but she specifically works with families who are black and brown who have an autistic member of that family, typically a child, right? And there's people who I've never met in my life in North Carolina and have heard about what I'm doing. They don't know anything about what she's doing. And she's been doing it for a while and she's the real deal. Like I'm learning from her. And so it just, it just shows that it's another place where um, black lives um, don't matter as much as they should. And they should. Right. They should. It, yes. Right. They do and they should. Yeah. And I wonder too about like, and, and we see this across the autistic community where like a lot of that research that's happening is about the children and right. it often is focused. I, I would argue more for the benefit of the parents of those children, but then something happens when these kids turn 18 right? and all the supports that they have go away. And they're, they don't, they don't look cute on fundraising posters anymore. <laughs> and there's very few people in positions like yours that are handling that transition to adulthood that are helping out with that transition to independence and to a career path. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's really special. I think that's an incredible service and I'm, I'm really hoping that, other career centers are taking note of your leadership and, and trying to build on that success. Man, I, I, I appreciate that. Thank you for those words. And um, there's other people that I've learned from. There's a woman named Nancy Forsyth at University of Maryland who um, has been very nice to have multiple conversations with me. And I met her three, four years ago during an organizational association meeting in New Orleans. Um, and she was talking about this and I had just, I was just starting my group then. And so she provided me a lot of helpful um, tips and best practices. And I'm from Maryland originally. My parents went to University of Maryland. So it just felt cool to talk to someone from there. But um, this is the intersection of career and mental health. And I hate that these things are siloed because they're not, our, our lives aren't siloed, right? right? We try to compartmentalize when possible, because yeah, it helps for me not to bring in issues within my home into the workplace, but that is a very intentional effort so that I can focus on things. It's still there in my mind, dancing around in my head between the moments where things aren't going on at work, you know, and 
you know, for black and brown folks, you know, we're not a monolith, so I don't want to speak for everyone, but I know this is a shared experience. We tend to not bring our whole selves to work because, you know, it's, I can't really say everything that I want to say about race at work. And yeah, people will hear that and say, well, no, I can say everything they want to say at work. Okay, I get it. I have those same things. And in addition to those things, I have this other thing that is one of the primary things of my life. You know, it is my number one piece of my identity. And um, yeah, like, so in this age, right? Like, 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 let's just, I'm sorry, man. I know you got all these questions, but like, I'm no, 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 right this is, this is, <laughs> you're doing great. So like we're, we're sitting here, right? It's whatever day it is, June 7th, whatever the heck, man. And so like, we've had all these protests, right? And triggered from George Floyd's murder. Um, but it's not just about George Floyd, as we know, who's been paying attention. So, right, the response has been huge, not even national, it's been global, which has honestly made me weep because it's like, I, I feel seen all of a sudden. I saw international protests, specifically the one I saw was these people in Germany saying like Black Lives Matter, and it was like all white folks. I cried, right. man. I'm a 5'11", 250-pound dude. I'm a muscular guy. Like, I'm a big dude. I, I was in tears. Like, I, I, I teared up. Um, but one of the things that has happened for a lot of African-American folks that I know is we have received text messages, emails, all kinds of messages from friends and colleagues and family saying, Hey, thinking about you during that time. And I love that. It's, it's great. It's sweet. And I appreciate it. The thing that makes it complicated is when it's someone that you know, or you work with who makes racist comments or who does racist things. And they might not be like in some overt, mean, bigoted person, but they habitually contribute to microaggressions and do these things all the time. And they're reaching out to you and other people like, hey, just thinking about you and your family during this time, you know, let me know if you can do anything. And it's like, what am I supposed to say? Like, well, let me give you a list of the things that you do. Right. <laughs> like, 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 what, like, what am I supposed to do? And that right. conversation's so, got to come soon. Oh, like, man. you know, there's a lot of people that look like me and I, we're on a podcast so nobody can see me, but I am a, I am a white guy. All right. I'm not a hundred percent white, but I live, I, I have lived a hundred percent of the white experience. That's a good way to put it. I mean, not, no one like race is a social construct. So ain't nobody, yeah. whatever. Right. Yeah. But yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but a lot of people who look like me are standing up. A lot of people who look like me are going to the protests. A lot of people who look like me are changing things in their workplace. But we still haven't had that really introspective moment, that truth and reconciliation. What have we as individuals been doing right. to help build and sustain this system that creates and protects our comfort? And that's something I've been reflecting on. Like a lot of white folks are starting to express that they're uncomfortable. You know, they need a rest. It's been 10 days of protesting and <laughs> we, we just need to take a break and recharge right now. 10 days, 10 days. Right. It's been 400 plus years of this mess. Right. And we're only just now starting to get in it. And 
10 days we need a rest? No, 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 no. I think if we're starting to feel uncomfortable, that's just the beginning of momentum. Right. And it's going to, there's going to be really uncomfortable conversations that have to happen about those things. Like what am I doing? Me, Magnus Hedemark, what am I doing that's contributing to the systemic issues, to individual relationship issues. And we might not know. We might not even know we do it. This is just how we were raised. You're this is this is why I love you, man. Like it's like yeah, yeah, right. And it's oh man. I okay. So there's been aspects of me that have been radicalized during this age of Trump and all this. Honestly, if I want to go back to it, it really started when Obama got elected because I was a self-described political nihilist at that point in time. I just believed the system was bankrupt. There was nothing you could do. Your vote didn't matter and all this stuff. I didn't vote in 08. I'm not proud to say that. And my partner who, look, it doesn't matter, but it matters for this conversation is African-American woman. And um, challenged me because <laughs> she's an attorney. So challenged me very hard and honestly just put me in my place. And I was like, yeah, this is dumb that I'm not voting, but I saw Obama get treated in a way that I know what that is. It was racism. And then in 2012, in addition to that, I also saw the Trayvon Martin thing. For some reason, Trayvon Martin's murder man, it made a switch flip in me because there were so many aspects of his life that I identified with. And I, in eighth grade, I was five foot 11. I was the same height I am now. And I was 185 pounds and I was doing martial arts and I was playing sports. I was muscular. I was a threat. Like I, there was a lot of false arrests and all this crap that happened to me at that point in time. And I smoked weed a lot at that point. I'm, I'm, I'm open about this. This is why I started doing substance abuse counseling work because I, I started abusing substances for multiple reasons. Um, primarily, I think now is probably um, racial reasons and that um, intersection of my ADHD and it not being acknowledged and me not understanding what that was and self-medicating. But anyway, so really it started there, to be honest, from when Obama got, a, excuse me, got elected to 2012 when Trayvon was, uh, and I started voting in 2012, let me just be clear, uh, I'm not a political nihilist anymore. Um, and then when that happened to Trayvon, when Trayvon was murdered and then Trump getting elected and then all this other stuff, you know, it's it's radicalized elements to me. And I used to be a lot more patient and loving and understanding in my conversations with folks. And um, I am a Christian. That's part of my faith. I'm not that kind of Christian. I don't believe it's a sin to be gay or anything else like that. I just want to be clear because I feel that you need to be. Thank clear. goodness. Oh yeah, you, know, you are. You already know, man. I'm not there, and it's that's a whole nother conversation. It, the Bible just simply doesn't say that. That's interpretations of how we conceptualize our current moment with that moment. It's two different periods of time. Whatever. So um, anyway, like I do believe that I, I I need to see things from other people's perspectives, and I need to meet people where they're at. But you know, my faith also tells me not to cast my pearls before swine as in people who are not receptive. Right. And so I'm not, I'm just not going there with people who aren't receptive at this point in time. And receptive doesn't mean they agree with me. It means they're willing to hear what I have, to, what I have to say. Um, I said all that because there, that conversation, that internal dialogue has to be tough, 
right? You have been conditioned to see yourself as a white man, white woman as I created all this, my people created all this, this is ours. I have this, I own, have this piece of ownership behind these things. Like it's, that's just the conditioning of it. Um, Mamie and Kenneth Clark, who were psychologists, I think like in the forties or the fifties, did the black doll, white doll experiment and showed the impacts of this social conditioning on young children. That was one of the pieces of research that was the tipping point in um, uh, the Brown versus Board of Education thing that happened that allowed schools to be integrated. And um, like, so it's a fact. You, you can't dispute that. People will try to, you can't. You're so it, it has to be hard to break a lifetime of conditioning. I acknowledge that. I don't have sympathy for it. I acknowledge that it has to be hard though, right? And um, it's uh, like, you just can't burn yourselves out. But I, I look at that and I think about like, well, what are the areas of my life where I'm not seeing these things, right? Like the, the conversation of privilege makes some people enraged. I worked hard for these right. things. I, I worked hard for this. How can you tell me I have luxuries? If you live in America, you're privileged, period. Yes. And and right. Um, if you're a man, you're privileged, regardless of your race, period. I can see so many areas of my privilege. I didn't work to be a man. I didn't work to be tall. I didn't work to be able-bodied. I didn't work to have a middle to upper middle class home with college educated parents. Like those things helped me to get farther in life. Like I, I can accept that as a black man. Why can't other people accept that? Which has led me, it, it forces me to be very intentional in my work with my autistic students. I used to say, you know, my students who have autism, I don't say that anymore because that Thank is you. clearly not how that population <laughs> right. of people want to be defined. So like, what is life if we can't look at ourselves and say, maybe I'm wrong about this? You know what? I really don't know a lot about this. Let me talk to the people who do know a lot about this. I mean, I just, it doesn't seem that hard. It I don't seems like know. common sense. <laughs> like, yeah, it should be. Right. right. Maybe, maybe that's the common sense of the new normal that comes out of all this. One can hope. One, one would hope. Man, you're, 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 I'm, I'm getting riled up here, man. I can feel it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we we danced around a couple of times a subject that I, I think our audience would love to hear. Um, you mentioned a couple of times that you've got ADHD as well. Mm. And that that's maybe a bit of a recent revelation. Uh, yeah. Can help, help me understand. How did you, how did you come into this knowledge? Oh boy, this has been something that I've been exploring and it is so much deeper than I ever thought it was. I'm trying to make this concise. So my younger brother, my parents were doing much better financially, very well financially at that point in time when my brother was young and we were living in Chapel Hill in a very nice neighborhood in, in North Carolina. And he was diagnosed as being dyslexic and um, being ADHD. And my brother is amazing. I love my brother. He's so smart. He's doing so much better than I was at his age. He l lives in Ohio and he's, he's just a great person. I, I, I love him. I'm not going to say his name because he might not want me to say his name on this. But um, man, I've watched him. I remember when he got diagnosed, 
and I wasn't surprised. He was like five or six. And, and I'm 10 years, nine and a half, 10 years older than him. And I was like, huh, interesting. And I've, I, I watched him progress through school and life. And it's like, man, these same things that he has going on that are attributed to ADHD, I, I'm doing that stuff. Huh. And then it became clear that my mom has ADHD. And later in life, I've acknowledged that my dad is super ADHD, although um, well, he'll probably listen to this. I love you, dad. I just noticed that. Okay. Um, you don't have to accept that. So, but um, I've noticed that, right? And um, throughout my life, I've it's been something in the back of my head, right? And we develop our own coping mechanisms in order to be resilient and to move through the waves of life um, well, right? And so I had my own things that I did, whether that was, you know, um, abusing substances or it was other things that I was doing, right? And uh, it was when I had a career change and I got into a master's program for career counseling and then I tacked on an additional master's of mental health and I started learning about this. I was like, oh, this is even more interesting. And then I started learning the DSM-5 and I was like, oh, this is definitely me. And then in that private practice I was telling you about, there was a period of time where I practiced or partnered with someone who's a PA that did some work with uh, people who were medicated for like ADHD and anxiety and on like methadone, uh, methadone and suboxone for heroin and all this other stuff. And, uh, and opioids. And so we were in this like kind of like networking informational session with a psychiatrist who used to work with major league baseball players. And he now worked with adolescent young adult men. And he, he said, let me walk you through, uh, the typical profile of one of my ADHD patients and brother, I thought like Ashton Kutcher was going to come out. And they were like, ah, you're punk. Like, I thought it was, it was like, clearly they were mocking me. Like, right. It was some kind of joke. Th- this, this man that I'd never met walked through my life story. Like in middle school, they're, you know, they'll be kind of detached, you know, they're class clowns. They, they, they'll probably start abusing substances by middle school, but definitely by high school. And, um, you know, then they get really into sports and they're probably really good athletes because the structure of being an athlete and the, you know, mm-hmm. the tactile sensation is really great for that. And I, I was a pretty good athlete. Um, I played football, I played lacrosse, I played soccer, I did martial arts. And, um, so I was like, okay. And they're like, if they get to college, I barely got into college by the grace of, um, a black woman who saw that I was intelligent because I could write well. Uh, she challenged me and I love her. Um, she's amazing. She's still a, a factor in my life. That's the reason why I went to college and I went to NC state for undergrad. I, I, w- I wouldn't have got in otherwise. And so, all of those things. And then he was like, and then when they get in college, they just, it's just kind of a piece of paper. It's just a box check for them. You know, one of the most common professions that these young men get into is business to business sales. And I was like, time out, time out. Uh uh-uh, uh, come on, y'all. All right. Wow, nah, that hit nah, close just, to home, huh? Man, that I sat and marinated on that thing for a week. I was just like, okay, so this is definitely a reality without a question. And I just moved on. I didn't think about it. But, you know, whether you want to say the universe or 
karma or whatever to me it's god whatever like whatever your background is like it divine intervention man like things just started happening and then i find myself working with autistic students at state and i'm like man this is you know really interesting then i started learning more about you know the issues that they face those systemic neurotypical barriers and you know how they embrace their identity when i learned the preference for identity first language versus person first language I was like, oh, this this is a piece of them. Well, I don't really acknowledge that piece of myself. And I thought about that, but I never dove into it. And then I had an exam. There's not a whole lot of exams in you know, my area of study for my doctoral program. It's a lot of writing. It's a lot of research and stuff. But we had an exam, research designs exam, and it was crazy. It's 50 questions. It's based on an article that you read, a scholarly article, and you have to like talk about the different factors of external validity and internal validity and all this crap. And the the 50th question was to write a four-page research critique of the article that you were answering questions about, and it had to be in APA format. And only five people out of 25 didn't finish. One of those people, their computer crashed. So if their computer didn't crash, they would have finished. So really, there was four and out of those four, I was the worst. Like I had a page done. And, and it was in that moment, I was like, I don't work like these other people yeah. in this space. And some of them have ADHD too, but they know it and they've worked through that and they got these things. And I was just like, this has never happened to me again. I'm not, no, it's time for me to acknowledge that. And then I went through a battery of assessments with a psychologist. This was recent. This was this year. This was right, like right before COVID happened. In, in the U.S. And man, through working with the psychologist and really understanding all of these nuances to myself and then going back to talk to that teacher from high school to help corroborate the story and all this other stuff, my diagnosis, I was like, this has impacted me in so many areas of my life through my education, through my relationships with um uh, like romantic relationships to familial relationships to platonic relationships. I was like, this is, this is a huge part of my identity. And so like earlier I was saying, one of the reasons I've been able to even do students moving forward is because I have an office that allows me to have autonomy and some authority over my area. Well, I went back and challenged this notion that I had the roles in my professional career, entire professional career, where I had been the most successful, I had a black supervisor and or or maybe like uh, an executive supervisor in my office. The person who runs the entire department is, is a black male who has a doctorate degree, too. And like so even in my corporate career, it was that. And I, I just always assumed, OK, it was just the race component. But the extra components to that was those people gave me autonomy and they gave me authority to make decisions in my area, but to manage my time the way that I need to manage my time, the way that I know yes. that my brain works. So it was as much my, my ability to be effective in the areas that I'm in, it incorporates recognizing my whole self that I am black and what that means and that I am ADHD and what that means. And it's, man, I, I'm just honestly like just getting under the surface. I have scratched the surface. I am under okay. it now, but I am not there. And man, it's, 
it's changing, especially in this time when we're home all the time, which I actually like being home. Right. But um, whoo, it is hard to work, man. The Adderall that I have now is a recent <laughs> diagnosis. It helps a lot. But um, yeah, it's it, man, it's I, I've rambled on with that, which is a part of it. But man, it's 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 been enlightening, honestly. So help, help me to understand that a little bit. We talked about intersections before. And we talked a, a little bit about the, the black experience in America. What, what does the ADHD layer add to your experience as a black man in America? Yeah. So, um, one, there is an incredibly high rate of overdiagnosis and misdiagnosis for black people, period. Right. Um, that is a thing. And even though my family had the resources, they didn't have the awareness and knowledge until 10 years later when my brother was born. And that's not a slight to my parents. My parents are amazing. They nurtured us. They developed us. We just don't always have that same level of awareness within our systems because our relationship with the medical community has been frayed from the beginning. Um, I mean, we were experimented on and all these other things, Tuskegee, um, sterilization things in North Carolina and other states. And by the way, while those things were predominantly black people, poor white people were a part of that, too, which is why I don't understand (laughs) why, like, this level of movement hasn't happened, like, before, right? Because, yes, like, people always want to throw out that stat. Oh, but if you look, it shows that there's actually more white people to get you know, killed by police. Yes. One, we're not even going to talk about that, that we're talking about the ratio. Okay. Like there's, there's I, I got to say that impersonation was like close to home. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, it's, you know, like I'll, I'll be 38 later this year. I just, I do that without even thinking about it. I probably yeah. shouldn't, I shouldn't do no, that. Karen <laughs> might complain to your manager. <laughs> but, um, so, People say that, and it's like, yeah, that's true. Are you going to come with me and protest this? Right? Like, I just, I don't get that. First of all, but um, so yeah, like uh, blackness and the ADHD thing, like uh, you cannot separate them, man. So when I I used to just think about my trajectory in school purely from my perspective of being a black male and how that is viewed, what I didn't know. And I know now is that a lot of that friction was exacerbated because I was ADHD, right? And so, for example, um, my ability to concentrate in class, um, people are always, not always, but usually people are surprised when they hear me say I'm an introvert. And I got friends who listen to this and they'll laugh and they'll say, that's not true, Wes. But, you know, and and you don't have to be um, shy to be an introvert. I am outgoing. I wasn't an outgoing child. I was an incredibly shy child, by the way. I became outgoing because, you know, when I was in elementary school, I went to quote unquote good schools, which is uh, uh, just false, just a fallacy. But uh, I that meant predominantly white schools. So I was typically like one of a handful of non-white kids in whatever grade I was in until like middle school, things got a little bit different, but it was still pretty much like that. But um, when that happens, you 
stand out for a, a, a multitude of things, right? And um, you internalize that experience, but I was really shy. And if I didn't make it known of who I was, then the interpretation of who I was was left on to other people. So I noticed through having a dad who is a six foot four, like 270, super intelligent black man, like people ain't messing with my pop, man. So like, and he's just a no, he's super nice guy, really funny, but not passive aggressive at all. Like he will tell you about yourself in a heartbeat. It don't matter where he's at. And so I saw that and I was like, people don't challenge him. People see him. They know him because of what he says. So I forced myself to not be shy growing up. Um, again, I said, I lo love this time of being at home because I get to be at home because I, I like being at home and avoiding people and, and people never realize that. It's a forced, it's a, it's a learned behavior that I've worked on. Anyway, so when I was in school though, um, my attention span is all over the place. I don't do well just sitting in one seat and just listening to someone drone on. I like to touch things. I like to hear things. I like to experience things. I like to discuss things. I love discussing things. And so I'm talking to my classmates all the time and getting in trouble for it, like all the students did, but then getting in more trouble for it. I would like, they would get one warning, maybe two. I'd immediately get detention, maybe one warning. And like, so I would notice these things. And I would just think, they're just doing this because I'm black. There is a level of that there. But the other thing is, that was a symptom of my ADHD. <laughs> like, just the, the, the structure of the learning environment did not support that area of my identity, right? And then as I got older and all these other areas of my education came into place, it was, it was ignored. And th this is common. This is why intersectionality is so important. It's not just that I'm black. It's that I'm black and, right? And you think about black women, man, it's just like double, triple, quadrupled layered on them. So yeah, it's, man, it is, it is wholly part of my identity. It's, it's exacerbated everything. It's an accelerant to the black experience. How about that? That's what I'm going to say. That like is, that's a beautiful ADHD. way to put it. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I'm going to write that down somewhere. So yeah. like my ADHD is an accelerant to my black experience. I'm going mm. to write an article with that title somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, is there anything else that you wanted the audience to know about today that we haven't covered? Um, <laughs> a lot of things. But um, so I have I have a podcast coming out. Oh, yeah. I will, be, I will be asking you to be on it. It is called Peace, Love, Power. Um, it is a mental health podcast but we talk about things that we don't typically talk about in mental health, right? Like your education impacts your mental health, your career impacts your mental health, friendships impact your mental health. And that's what the first pilot kind of season is about. Um, so there's a website, which is peace-love-power.com. You can follow that at Twitter, PLP for Peace, Love, Power, PLP underscore podcast. Um, on Twitter, um, or my own Twitter, which is at Wes underscore Wade. And I usually post things that I got going on. Um, I'm just getting the website together. I actually finished the first episode back in December, and I recorded enough content for a second and third one. I got to sit down and edit those things and put them out there. Um, but 
that, uh, my students moving forward program, anyone who is an employer or if you're in North Carolina, well, now you don't even have to be in North Carolina because things is go are, are going to be virtual for students moving forward this coming Excellent. academic year. Um, but yeah, I always need more autistic professionals, especially autistic professionals of color to come and interact with my students so they can give their unfiltered experience and help these students navigate through through, through this space. Um, and yeah, but also, you know, I'm getting in, I'm getting into research now and I want to research in this whole neurodivergent space. And I want to look at autism. Uh, I want to look at autism. I want to look at ADHD. I want to look at that in relation to career and education and race and all these other things. So um, I've been learning about more researchers who themselves are autistic, who themselves are neurodivergent in this space. And man, yeah, if, if, if you are a researcher who is neurodivergent, follow me and let me know so I can look at your work and incorporate it into the stuff that I, I am doing and learning about too. All right. We're going to get all of those links out in the show notes. So make sure you look at the show notes for this episode. We'll get links to all, all the sites that Wes was talking about. Wes, I hope we can have you back at some point. Talk about what's going on with you and with the SMF program. Yeah, 100%. You are. Look, I'm going I'm to be texting you like, brother, when, when am I coming back? <laughs> all right. All right. It's going to happen. It's definitely going to happen. We're always looking out for, for more guests too, from all different representations. So, uh, you can reach out to me on Twitter, Magnus 919. Okay. Um, other than that, look, we're going to be back with you next week. We're going to have a different guest. And in the meantime, please be kind to each other. Love each other. Love yourself. Be kind to yourself. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>